Welcome to Move Evolution Drumming Therapy, treating the pain, injury, and movement dysfunction of the modern percussionist. Oh, my neck, my back, my neck and my back. Oh. My name is Richard Simister, physical therapist, sports and conditioning specialist, and percussionist. And I'm hoping I can help you treat, avoid, the most common drumming injuries and improve your drumming fitness. Heal, move, drum, evolve. Hey, greetings. Welcome back to Move Evolution Drumming Therapy. I am sincerely excited about today's interview. I get to interview April Centrone, a very talented percussionist, instructor, and very cool down-to-earth individual. And today we are going to focus on April's ability to stay drumming fit, her health concern that totally altered the way she looked at food, and challenges she faced along the way as far as racism, sexism, misogyny, and homophobia performing within the Arabic music community. April Centrone is a multi-instrumentalist, teacher, composer, and music therapist based in New York City and New Jersey. She is a Carnegie Hall World Explorer, 2020 musician and educator, business owner of 10PRL, which is an arts, film, and event space on the New, Jer New Jersey Shore, and co-founder of the New York Arabic Orchestra, a nonprofit organization specializing in the performance and education of Arabic music. April currently teaches world music at William Patterson University and has held lectures in music therapy and Arabic music percussion at Taipei University of the Arts, Lebanese American University, and others. She has worked extensively with inner city schools throughout New York's boroughs with projects such as Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Connect. She has performed in venues such as the United Nations, Carnegie Hall, and Lincoln Center and has toured throughout Europe, Americans, Middle East, and the Far East. April has toured with Arab icons including Zaid Rabani, Bassam Saba, and Marcel Karlif, among others. She conducted a music therapy tour with the U.S. Embassy of Malaysia, holding workshops at Rohingya, refugee youth centers, and safe houses for young Malaysian women. During her residence in Lebanon from 2013 to 2016, April held Arabic music workshops for Syrian and Palestinian refugee youth throughout her project, Jafor. She currently teaches group and private instruction in percussion and oud and leads therapeutic drum sessions. April strongly advocates female empowerment in her teaching and compositions. Her debut album, The New Moon, is available on Spotify. April carries a master's degree in forensic psychology from John Jay College, NYC.
to everyone listening right now, I'm really, really excited to interview April Centrone. I've known her for a uh, quite a while, and I, I want to educate, uh, bring our listeners up to um, up to date on how I actually met April, and then I'll let April talk a little bit and tell the viewers about herself. My wife and I went to Egypt maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, we went to do some research. My wife was a belly dancer at the time, African belly dancer. And uh, we also wanted to renew our vows. So I alone, um, only male, went along with 14 or 15 other um, belly dancers to Egypt. We bought some instruments. My wife bought an oud. She fell in love with the oud. It got smashed, smashed, smashed between New York, I mean, between Egypt and New York um, at Penn Station. I think not at, at, um, at LaGuardia, we, uh, my wife was distraught. A young woman came up to her. Her name was Rosie. She's Egyptian who lives in New York. And she says, I know someone who repairs ouds who owns a falafel shop, which was, yes, a falafel shop. His name was, and please correct me if I'm wrong, April, Najib Shahid. That's right. Nice and really odd fellow, nice guy, smart guy, and he repaired my wife's oud and turned her on to um, Bassam Saba, who was the co-founder of the New York Arabic Orchestra, April, and you'll see this, all her, her bio, um, they'll be in the show notes, April is the, um, all, the other co-founder of the New York Arabic Orchestra. Now... Not only did Cheptetzar take an oud lesson, she became a member of the New York Arabic Orchestra in the percussion section. And I, as a percussionist, became always, uh, I was drawn to the percussion section. And I uh, listened, saw April play, listened to her play, and I wanted to meet April. And long story, uh, already long, April became my teacher. I took a few Rick lessons from her. She's an excellent instructor. And that is how I met April Centrone. Did I cover everything? I would say so. <laughs> April, April, April. Greetings and good afternoon. How are you today? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, um, what's, what's the date? It's um, June 3rd. We're in the midst of everything, everything, everything. And actually later on, I'm going to do a five minutes of sanity breathing podcast because I need it. Everyone needs it. But... Let's talk about you, you, you. Um, priest, the priest, when they get the calling, you know, they get the calling for the priesthood. Moses, the, the burning bush, what was your calling? What, what, what was the drumming bug that bit you? And how did it bite you? And when did it bite you? Well, my original drumming bug came when I was eight or nine years old. And uh, that was from... Luckily, when it still existed, music program, the music program of the of the grammar school had, uh, you know, and they said, oh, you can, you know, you can study. Uh, it was a small school, so they had a saxophone and flute and trumpet, and I saw this round thing sitting there um, in you know the summer of fourth grade, and we were allowed to walk around the the cafeteria and look at and try the different instruments. And I saw this little round figure and I said, oh, this is a drum. And I said, what do I know how to play right now? I know how to hit things. This is perfect for me. 
oh boy, there is a tornado happening outside. <laughs> I just looked out my window. But um, yeah, so it was, it was, it really struck me and I took to it immediately. Um, it, it was absolutely entrancing. And then I went on to play in the jazz band and the concert band and the marching band and on and on and on um, until I, I left high school and I was uh, I went to New York to study in college and I was looking for some other kind of music that I couldn't put my finger on. I, I knew that I was looking for something, but I wasn't even sure what it was. But I knew it was some, some form of emotional expression that I didn't experience, you know, growing up in America, in, in New York City, in, in a place where, you know, you've you got to stay tough and watch your back and, and uh, be careful of other people and, you know, be, be guarded. So one day I I discovered Arabic music and the whole culture and the people uh, that follows, uh, and it was exciting and overwhelming and terrifying because I saw a group of people who hugged and and held hands and played music into each other's eyes and sang every moment they had a chance to and. I thought, oh my God, how much I want this and yearn to this, but but I feel so so outside of it, so so terrified, so cut off. How will I ever be this vulnerable? You know, and that began began my 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 journey into specifically Arabic music. In in two thousand five, I was twenty years old. So it was this solidarity of the Arabic culture that brought you in, almost like the, the Brazilian culture. Anytime there's a chance to be around family, to express themselves through music and physical touch, is that what drew you in? That was part of what ultimately drew me in and kept me in, I'd say. Um, initially, when I was you know, slinking around New York and my taste, my musical taste became more and more, quote, out there. I was listening to more and more experimental things. I was going to awesome experimental clubs at the time, like Tonic and, you know, and then finally that gave way to, to road, roadways into trance and, and world music. I, and most immediately I, I experienced, for example, Indian music, I, I saw that there was something in ecstatic music and trance music in general for me. I said, this is this something. There's something there that I need to pursue. Um, and, and Arabic music, especially at that time, wasn't as, as prevalent as certainly like Indian music. Um, Indian music has the decades behind it to, to establish itself in New York City. So one day, very randomly from a, a bush protest drum group like <laughs> I heard about a Palestinian art and violin virtuoso concert at Symphony Space in the Upper West Side in February 2005 and I said I'm going to go to this and in the middle of that concert was the moment where everything changed the moment 
my life did an utter 180 in, in the middle of one of his improvisations, which we call in Arabic, Pakasim. I, I, I was full Lord, and I said, I need this. And again, totally terrified because I knew nothing about this music, but <laughs> I knew I had to. I knew my life needed to go in this direction. Who, who thought? Who would have thought? You know, and then, and then, you know, some months later, because I, I was obsessed by that point, I discovered the, this man whose name is Simone Shaheen. I discovered his Arabic music retreat, mm-hmm. which met an- annually in August. And that's when I experienced the rest of the picture, um, the culture, the people, the, the, the way music intertwined with food and with love and with uh, passion and, and, and affection and, and uh, a timelessness to, to social interaction, a warmth of social interaction a care and, and friendliness on a, on a level that I've never known in America, you know, with Americans. That's so funny. You mentioned Simon Shahid, who is the brother of Najib Shahid, who owned the, <laughs> the falafel place. That's uh, right. Yeah, now, that's right. Now, when you were, now you were, you were following this feeling, this drive. Two questions. How was your family support? And also, and also any mentors out there who pushed you along and said, you know, you can do this. It may be uncomfortable for you, but, you know, nothing grows in comfort. You have the talent, you have the drive, go do it. So family support and mentors. My, my family was incredibly supportive. Um, I, I grew up in a household of, of artists and, and uh, my grandmother was my, my biggest influence and support and mother, really. She raised me. Uh, she was a feminist playwright. She worked in civil rights. She worked with Martin Luther King. She was an incredible, wow. incredible person. And um, this, this, you know, also meant a lot to her that I, I was exposing myself to culture. And she loved the music too. And she came to know all the players. Um, so I had a, a lot of family support. And as far as mentorship. Well, my main mentor, unfortunately, just passed. Uh, uh, he he became sick with coronavirus. He was he was also ninety years old, but he was playing, and he was he had many years ahead of him. Who was this? Was very very sad. So. Who was this? Uh, Michelle Merhez Batlou. He's he's a legendary Rick player. He's he had over uh, half a century of incredible incredible body of work with the biggest biggest stars in the middle east in lebanon etc and um he worked with the rahbani brothers and Fayrouz and the rahbani and all and and he was part of that process of arranging he wasn't just a quote you know wasn't quote just a percussionist he was he was everything and he knew the music in and out and he was on all the big radio and all the big songs so hit so his playing was the real inspiration for why I said I need to dive into Rick in particular. Um, I never, I never saw anyone approach that instrument like he did. It was such subtlety, such music, uh, such grace, such attention and listening. Um, and it reminded me of what I loved about 
drum set, especially in certain jazz situations, and yet this was could be held in the palms of your hands. Uh -huh. It was all this incredible sound, and two, and this is this little kind of tambourine. So he was my mentor uh, that I met, and I met him uh, at the retreat in 2005. Okay, and I was going to have you explain to our listeners what the Rick is for those who don't know. And um, you already said it's in the family of the tambourine or the pandero, and it is a little uh -huh. mini drum set. And I, again, I had the wonderful opportunity of taking a few lessons from 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 April, and it, it was an awesome experience. Awesome, awesome. Uh -huh. um, I, I want to jump ahead and ask um, about the New York Arabic orchestra because I've seen you and Basan Saba, the other co-founder of the New York Arabic Orchestra, I've seen you two interact and you have such great energy. How did you how did you first meet him and what is the connection? Is it a mutual respect uh, because of each other's skills and energy connection? Do you blend musically together? So how did you meet and what's the great connection? Well, Basan and I met at the retreat as well in 2005. Um, in August 2005, and my first experience of him was was like I mean incredibly, incredibly mind-blowingly talented multi-instrumentalist. Uh, anything he picked up, the 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 Western flute, the nai, the oud, the violin, you know, he, he would he would just uh, he was just clearly a, a virtuoso master of of all of it. And he also had such um, a youthful, joyful approach. Yes, indeed. Uh, which, which, which also called to me because one thing I, I, you know, we I think we could say all oh, we've all suffered from in New York City is this 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 uh, sense of of music training. You know, they people that come from Berkeley and all these different places are very stressed about music. They're very stressed, <laughs> very very stressed, and. The song was was the opposite. He seemed he turned into uh, a kid on the you know the morning of Christmas whenever he played. So so he that he was a beautiful marriage of of incredible virtuosity and also just unbridled useful joy. Um, and I, I really took to that. And he became a major mentor of mine in in continuing. And he started me off learning my own. Um, and over time, uh, in, in 2007, I said, you know, let's get this, let's get this organization going where other people obsessed like me about Arabic music can live and breathe it all year round. Like, let's do, let's make an orchestra. And, um, you know, my two favorite things became Arabic music and orchestras. Like, you know, when I, when I saw him conduct at, Arabic music retreat, I was literally floored because there's nothing more beautiful than sitting in an orchestra and it being Arabic music. I was like, I was in heaven. So I said, we need to do this in New York. So we created the New York Arabic Orchestra in, in 2007, which ultimately became an incorporated uh, nonprofit 501c3 organization to preserve and promote. Arabic music and and uh, cultural awareness. For those who have not listened to an Arabic orchestra live, I have seen the New York Arabic Orchestra at a Hatshell event, and 
I don't remember the exact name of the um, something to my father. It's a, he plays it every time. Mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. the what's the name of that um, the song? Walt. Yeah, Walt to my father. Man, I go into this meditative state. Mm -hmm. It's the most pacifying, mollifying, and rejuvenating experience. And once I leave, I feel like I've been to uh, church, a commune, mm -hmm. to the beach all at once. So, um, yeah, yeah, great experience. <laughs> all right, we're going to go into the, um, the the hot topics. We're going to talk about your experience as far as sexism, misogyny, racism, and homophobia within the Arabic community. And I want to be explicit. So we're going to take a little break, and we will be right back. Okay, April, we hop into the hot, controversial topics. Now, before we, before we start talking about um, sexism, misogyny, racism, homophobia within the Arabic music community, I would like you to explain or describe yourself to our listeners as far as your race, your gender, your, uh, your stature or size, and also, if you don't mind, sexual preference, because that's going to bring perspective to what we're, uh, we're getting ready to, uh, to hit. So... Talk, Miss April. Let us know. Who are you? What do you look like? Well, I I am white. I'm I'm Sicilian American, if you will. Um, I am five three. I'm a, I've, I've always been pretty pretty small person, pretty thin. Um, what can I say? I would say kind of wiry. <laughs> sinewy. I say sinewy. You have very muscular arms. Yes. Yeah. I would just say I'm strong. Um, I'm female, and uh, I I identify as as a lesbian. Okay. So let's let me ask you topic by topic. As far as um, being seen as a white female drummer in this mm -hmm. environment, how were you treated? Or what? Tell me the challenges you faced, or an example of some sort of hurdle you had to. Um, uh, Amount. In the in the Arab community? Yes. Or specifically as a in the Arabic music community. Mm -hmm. I would say the hurdles that I experienced as a quote white female in the Arab community uh, overall is just respect and inclusion. Um, uh, I would say there were a lot of things I wasn't, I wasn't included in, um, and it, it, those ensembles were primarily male and never ceased to be male, even to this day. Um, and I always wondered why that was the case. <laughs> uh, and then as far as, you know, specifically this percussion, um, for some reason, in the Arab uh, music tradition, it's very male dominated, especially in the professional uh, percussion world. And I'm not quite sure why, when you have, for example, in Iran, uh, that you have a slew of professional female uh, bass players. Um, and, you know, so I, I can't answer why, why that, that divide exists. But uh, there's definitely a lot of um, a, a lot of sense from the Arab community that I, I think a woman is not necessarily going to play seriously or play powerfully enough, mm -hmm. or, or just be be uh, good enough to be 
in that situation. And as far as your race, was there any, um, you can't play our music because of who you are or where you are from? Well, I would say uh, the positive thing that I've discovered over the years, I ran into some of that sentiment in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, oh, there's no way a Western ear could understand quarter tones, not like we do growing up in it, right? Yeah. Um, and I did not agree with that. And, of course, they could say, well, of course a white girl wouldn't agree because, you know. <laughs> but but, I, but I, I didn't. I didn't because I, I saw something, not just, not just with me and how I related to Arabic music, but how, let's say, my friend from Japan deeply related to Brazilian music. Or, you know, I, I saw, especially in New York City, where you have such a different pile of people all together sharing cultures, I think some of the best musicians uh, in different, different traditions, and they, were, they didn't grow up in that tradition. So it was very clear to me that if you loved something so much, you loved it to, in a way that you don't, you have no idea even why. It's like clearly a calling in your life, and you put in the work. Yeah. I believe I believe you can you can absolutely uh, approach that art with with um, with integrity. And and believe me, I was obsessed with 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 honoring the tradition. I did not want to play publicly without, you know, really feeling like I embodied it. So I worked very hard. I listened nonstop to Arabic music throughout the whole day. And I and I saw every concert I could possibly see in New York City. Passion um, and internal so, you had some passion and you internalized it. Right. So eventually eventually um, I I didn't see the problem anymore. Uh, it actually quite the opposite. Um, when I moved to Lebanon in 2013, where I ultimately stayed for three years, I felt I felt almost uh, a, a kind of crazy embrace of the fact that I was quote white or American or not quote Arab, um, and and it ended up making the um, kind of contributing a feeling to. Let's say the Lebanese people of, wow, you know, maybe there is something to our culture, to our music, the fact that this, you know, white American girl dedicated her life to it. Um, and and that, that was such a positive thing to come out of, of, of learning this culture and moving there because it was, it was important to hear it from another voice, you know, not just to quote another Arab voice. To say, yeah, this this is meaningful. You gotta take notice of your culture and the heritage. If you if you quit on it, because of course that's what happens around the world. A lot of um, a lot of people are trained to to sort of say, ah, oh, my culture is whatever. Let me listen to some, you know, rock music, whatever, <laughs> mm. or a box. So, and then you know, the only challenges to, in, that I that I experienced in a professional in Lebanon. Um, this is this is where it all comes down, you know. And women experience this all the time. If you have a seat that a lot of people want, they think you slept with someone to get there, you know. And and 
Yes, that was the hardest, hardest, hardest thing um, in, in my entire drum life, really, but especially living in Lebanon. It was, it was a sense of, well, how, how, why would he give her that position? Yes. You know, I want that position. And that started very aggressively when I started working with Ziad Rahtani, who was, it was an absolute dream to work with him. I never pictured that would ever happen in my life. The son of Fayrouz, but like we were talking like royalty in terms of in terms of Arabic music, uh, and and I ended up playing drum set and percussion with him, mostly Rick. So there was a lot of a lot of animosity, I'd say, and uh, and I don't think that would have been the case had I been a man. I I don't I don't think anything having to do with me being white more more than I was a woman. No. I want to ask you about, and we'll call this stress or mental stress, or stress basically Fs or mess with, messes with your performance, whether it's you're practicing or performing. Now, you carrying this pressure on you to prove yourself, how did you get behind the kit or pick up the rick and not let this affect your, your, your performance? Well, what carried me through was, was the music and the connection that I allowed myself to have with this artist who, you know, everyone, everyone admits Ziad has a lot of issues, there's a lot of controversy, um, politically and otherwise, circulating around him. And, and, and the circle of people that also surrounded him, like any circle that surrounds anyone who's famous, is full of, there's a lot of uh, dark stuff there. Everyone wants to get next to a famous person. Everyone has these agendas. And my only agenda was like um, sitting on stage playing this famous song that I, in a sense, grew up with like ever since I started Arabic music and I listened to the song and I learned from the song here I'm playing it with the guy who wrote it or his mother sang it or whatever, you know. So I that that is what, what pulled me through and I, I connected with me at a very deep level. I know people hated that, that, that we connected, um, and again, of course, they say all kinds of nonsense as a result, right? Of course. So, um, that's what pulled me through. It was still difficult, you know, because all eyes, I felt like were on me, too. They really wanted me to screw up. They <laughs> really, really, wanted, really wanted me to screw up, but I kept doing it and kept doing it and kept at it. We had sometimes three or four shows a week, and it was... It was hectic, and and it was, you know, but I did it. I did it, and um, and there were beautiful, beautiful moments I'll never forget, including sometimes that I had conversations with Dad, and he would say things to me like, you know, I feel like no one ever liked this CD I did, but but you love it, you know. <laughs> You're the only one who seems to care, <laughs> and um, you know. And here's this guy, he's brilliant, brilliant composer and arranger, he never went to music school, so he carries around this chip on his shoulder, like, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, he's so insecure, but he's brilliant. And, you know, there are these moments that I got to tell him, no, I mean, it's like brilliant work, you know, even if, like, maybe he thinks nobody likes it. I just, you know, he's a, he's a wonderful person who has suffered from a lot of things. But he's, he, you know, I miss those days in, in a way. But 
Any any issues with homophobia or bullying or intimidation? Because again, you were very muscular and sinewy, but you have a small frame. So did anyone try to um, um, use that tactic against you, or was there any feelings of you know what? I don't like you because of this, because of who you uh, spend time with. Well, I'll be very honest. You know, I I, I didn't always identify as as a lesbian because that wasn't always my life. I, you know, I had my many many loves um, in my life, which were not women. Um, you know, my time in Lebanon was was a mixed time, <laughs> if you will. And, you know, what I experienced is not what you're going to expect me to answer. Um, what I experienced was a culture that was in- intensely open-minded, um, almost matter-of-factly, uh, you know, yes, this is what we do, you know. And the more I investigated this, this sentiment around, you know, homosexual behavior, the, the easiness around it was, uh, what I discovered was it seems to be related to it being an older culture. Like, for example, one of my friends who's from Syria said to me that in, in, in old Syria, she called it, women used to be together. <laughs> you know, and she said it so, so casually. And then something really shot off in my, in my brain, like a light bulb went off, which is in America. We, we, we may think we're superior because we say it's legal, <laughs> but, but we have no sense, we have so much shame because we have really no sense about the, the true history of human beings in the world and, and how, you know, quote, homosexual uh, life, behavior, you know, for lack of a better word, was, was something so healthy and natural to, to life. It, it was something that honored the, the union of a man and a woman to really you know protect her they understood the female reproductive system more when mm-hmm. when women were honored and, and, and respected and worshipped. I mean we're talking from thousands of years ago, but there was a, there was definitely a time when when the idea to enter a woman and, and as a man was, was really like you don't just do that. You don't just throw this around. You you take care of her and, and creating life is very important and, and honoring the whole thing. So the homosexual behavior, and baby, we've heard of it, you know, in passing by Greeks and Romans, but this was shared around the world, family, like every, every culture had that as, a, as an important aspect of its life because it was a healthy, fulfilling way to express our overwhelming sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it, that's it, you know, we're, America is so, we're still in the, in our, in the kind of dark ages, the way we think, <laughs> we're still talking about it, it's so silly, yeah. we're still talking about it. We are an uptight uh, society. So yeah, it's so backwards, so, so I, I was, I was pleasantly, I learned so much from an older culture to see that, yes, it's something beautiful, natural, and, and I even noticed that, you know, women who, 
they didn't even seem to bother identifying because that whole thing seems stupid too. Like Americans are obsessed with what identity are you? Yes. They just they just they just love who they want to love and they wear who they want to wear. They wear who they want to be and they and they didn't feel like okay I have to identify like this and therefore I have to dress like this and therefore 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 there was none of that. Yeah, beautiful women with long hair, lovely dressing casually, however beautifully heels, no heels, whatever, and they were lesbians or not, or something in the middle, or they don't care, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't this, this thing that we make it here, and I thought, I, I just, it was, it was incredible, really, and I saw this in other cultures, too, traveling around the world, um, that, you know, even if, even if it's, quote, not legal, the government says it's not legal, the culture the way it embraces it and understands it and explores it and is open to it, it's so much, so far, so, so much healthier than here. Let's say advanced. Let's say advanced. <laughs> yeah, advanced. So, Evolved. So that's, so that's all I have to say. And, and advanced, being advanced is really understanding our ancient ways, which I think people are starting to understand in America, you know. We would call that in my household, my family, and my, uh, uh, a Sankofa, you're not, you, there's no, if you don't know your past, you're bound to repeat, if you don't know your past, you're bound to repeat it, something to that effect, and um, I'm going to talk to you later, a little bit about this later, about your forensic background and the history of the drum, but I totally believe if we don't study our past, we're, we're never going to evolve. We're never going to learn. We're always going to be uptight and create these um, uh, fictitious taboos for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Last segment, I want to talk about you, your health then and your health now and the little health scare you had a little while back and how that changed your, uh, your whole outlook on nutrition and eating. So we will be right back. April, I've always known you to be very, very fit, and I like to call it drumming fit. So you were you were working out all the time. I'm not sure if it was yoga, Pilates. I remember you had a heavy bag out back. But please tell me a little bit what your regimen, what your regimen was like then, the little health scare you had, and what symptoms you had, how it affected your drumming, and now how you how you how you stay drumming fit uh, today. Well, ever since I was 16, I, I enjoyed, you know, strength training. It, it just made my back feel good. Make it made it made me feel good. I never would have pain when I sleep or wake up. And I and I it just felt it just felt empowering. So I, I started in the gym ever since I was 16, and I became certified as a personal trainer and, uh, under AFPA and did different things like that and. And then over time, got more into calisthenics and push-ups and jump training and, and blast training, this sort of thing. Um, now, you know, I think what a lot of us fall victim to, especially in our 20s, is, you know, the, the, what we experience in, in the articles we read and, and the things, we, you know, that we watch on Facebook and all these different places of 
you know, for example, animal brutality and and uh, this will give you cancer and this and that and the other thing. So, you know, I let my feelings and thoughts uh, dictate what I started to eat. And um, I would say I was a, a vegetarian slash, slash vegan, I guess, sometimes. Um, for a better, better part of seven years, uh, along with, I would say, pretty heavy working out, you know, every day, every other day. I was, you know, kind of obsessed with having abs and all this stuff, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I remember. Um, so I, you know, but then a couple of years ago, um, yeah, I, I got very sick. I became, uh, well, I probably was becoming anemic, uh, specifically iron deficient anemia. So the normal amount is 15 to 55 units, I guess, per, um, I guess that's according to how much is in your, on your blood cells. And I had six, which is a, what they call alert low. And it was very scary. Um, it feels like, everything feels like an effort just getting out of bed. Like everything feels like you have to breathe harder, um, like you're sort of underwater. If I had if I had to try to describe it, if you've ever been um, jet lagged and haven't slept for a whole week and drowning, <laughs> that's sort of how it feels. Um, it was it was scary and and it affects other things. So you know I would feel sometimes very nauseous or I would feel uh, a lot of anxiety and different things. So at first I tried to to fix the problem with a uh, vegetarian method. Um, but nothing was moving the needle. I really, uh, it wasn't working. And I, and I was seriously con concerned for my, for my health, my life continuing. Um, so finally, one day, you know, and, and again, I was just feeling so terrible. So, like I said, just sick in different ways. And someone said the word sausage, I think, or something. <laughs> the key word. I <laughs> the I trigger. I think I smelled it. I think someone said the word. And then I felt this powerful thing move inside of me. I, it's the best way I can explain it. And I said, oh, wow. Like, And I, I was surrounded by family. And I said, you know what? I think I, think I want that. I think I, you know, we're, we're, sitting, we're sitting at some some restaurant, and I don't know. I, and then everyone sort of sighed with relief because they knew that could be the the beginning of my healing. Because if I if I had this craving, it's probably probably the direction I need to take. So, everyone, that was April's second calling. The first was drums. The second was sausage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was so crazy. So so that night, my aunt. Said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a steak. That's like that's the thing that's gonna give you the that's the classic injection of iron. So you know, I was I was a little scared, but but just also relieved because I something in me told me that this is gonna be the beginning of my my healing. Um, so I, I uh, actually before I got to that point, it happened that my uh, my uh, nonna made made uh, her own sausage 
you feel what's the difference right now if you skip three days of putting some sort of meat protein in your diet no I'll feel I'll feel weak uh, I'll feel even a kind of anxious like a like an anxiety even mm-hmm. um, my brain also will be a little out of focus my mind might race um, a number of things that it because what what going back what I noticed was when I was anemic you know, it, it contributed to anxiety. There's this sort of anxiety attached to it, and I realized when you're missing nutrients, everything's out of whack, everything. And so so I became a calmer person, too. I became more grounded, I, That's besides becoming stronger. I mean, it, it took a good, I would say, a better part of the year to really feel that strength again. And so, of course, I abandoned a lot of the heavier weight, you know, all the calisthenics and went more toward meditation and restorative yoga, et cetera, for a while. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's calming. It's, it's incredible. One point yeah. I want to make based on this is really important. I don't tell anyone just start eating meat again or change it get your blood work and not the basic exactly. blood work you get from your medical doctor nothing against exactly. your medical doctor but an endocrinologist or there are, um, I just got um, someone referred me to a she's a psych, psychoanalyst blood work person whatever she does deep deep blood work before she even prescribes any meds because she wants to see, you may be missing something maybe vitamin A potassium but everyone out there I, I tell everyone get deep blood work to find out what's going on build your foundation of nutrition and work from there sorry to interrupt but i thought it was a great yeah. time to add it no, in 100 if i had done that i would have known earlier before it got really low and i had to really take a big swing back right on. um and then when i got my blood tested only two months two or maybe three months later that's it after starting eating me my iron number went from six to 33 Wow. wow. And then we're talking the normal range between 15 and 55. So I just, I, I, I send a note of caution out there because I wish someone mentioned to me that this could be a possibility, especially women who, you know, we're losing blood every month 
Mm -hmm. losing iron every month. Just, just, just get your blood tested checked. And a lot of women are teetering on the edge. Yes, so, yes. You know, and all I have to say about the whole thing is, at the end of the day, it's not about what you feel. It's not about what you think. It's your body. Your body, you have to listen to your body. Listen to your body, be more aware of the signals and signs. And another point, during this pandemic, a lot of us are staying in more and we're not mm -hmm. getting as much sun. So yeah. vitamin D deficiency, and that can lead to depression, sleep issues. Again, blood work, blood work, blood work. Uh, April, this is, this is for my own um, edification as a physical therapist. I wanted to ask you, and also because I'm a drummer, what's the most physical challenging part of drumming for you? And second part of this question, what's the instrument that takes the most energy for you to play, to wield, to perform mm -hmm. upon? Well, the, the, the instrument that takes the most would, I would say, it really depends on, on the musical situation. Mm -hmm. So if it's, if, it's a, if it's a nightclub, which I avoid doing those kinds of gigs, those guys playing in the Arab nightclub, they've developed hands that look like paws. I mean, they're playing so loud. And unfortunately, you know, these acoustic instruments have to compete with basses and and big sound systems now. It's not it's not like you're playing with other acoustic instruments anymore. Do you actually do you actually see the hypertrophy, the growth in their hands, the change in uh, muscle oh, tissue? Oh yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, in those situations, those guys who play nightclubs, yeah, their hands are massive. You don't need that when you're playing in a in a in the more traditional setting, which is the way the music has been up until maybe well, 20 years ago. I mean, you know, the the, night, the, the heavy bass track, you know, music has, is a re relatively new thing. So, so that, that will hurt. <laughs> that will hurt. That will split my fingers apart. Um, it will crack. It will, like, white cracks. And, um, and sometimes you're using muscle, muscle you shouldn't be using. So, um, but but in general in general finesse you know finesse use of percussion and drum set it, it feels totally fine for me drum set too if it's if it's a situation where it can be very heavy music um there are other issues with drum set because let's say you're coming in on a gig and the drums are not exactly how it, it, it would be configured to your body type and i'm small so most drums, most drums are set a little high for me. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that can be that can be a challenge. But but overall, I, I'm I'm pretty I I'm very obsessed with working on how to just use my joints and be very relaxed. And a lot of people say when they watch me play drum set and percussion that oh, it seems like you know. You're barely doing anything. You're just, you know, and this is this is thanks to years of jazz and world music. Both both those traditions are going to teach you how to just relax. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Um, but your other question about what what issues I've had. Yeah, that was my actually that's my third part. My first was what's the most okay. physical challenging part of drumming? What instruments mm -hmm. take the most energy? And my third was what injuries most have you had and do you have any uh, recurring or current injuries or pain or discomfort? Hmm. 
Well, yes, over recently, say over the past year, uh, maybe just because I'm getting a little older, but um, I, I do have an issue with my left side. Um, my left uh, shoulder blade wings out, and that could just be from years of, of playing. And even if I'm playing normally, the, the instruments themselves prop up your arm in a, in a funny way. Uh, especially the Middle Eastern percussion. Like the like dough? Yeah, the darbuka and the frame drum mm. kind of pops your arm up, which if you're hitting busily with your left hand and you're propped up, probably over time, <laughs> not the greatest thing. Um, and 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 also as a drum set player, some challenges because I'm open-handed, which means not that I'm left-handed, but I play uh, the snare drum essentially with my right hand and all the ride cymbal hi-hat stuff with my left hand. Huh. And, and You're that, one of those. That, <laughs> that could be, that, that has proved to be a challenge too because again, number one, most drum sets are not configured that way. Um, so I might be doing something a little awkward with my left arm. And, and two, yeah, it's, it's in order to be, have your back perfectly aligned, like that, you really have to uh, set the drum set up in a way that it normally wouldn't be or there wouldn't be room. So, you know, it's, it's been challenging and it has been uh, a pain from the left, a whole left side of my neck down to back behind my shoulder blade. And, and, and uh, so when it flares up, it's pretty terrible. <laughs> so, you, do you keep your hi-hat on your left or your right? On my left. So oh, on your the, left, the okay. Set, the okay. drum set is the same configuration as a as a typical righty player, but but I play what they call open handed. And there are many there are many famous open handed players. Um, it's just something a little bit different, you know, to get to, to to configure from the left side. You have to make sure it's configured well or you'll probably hurt yourself. Gotcha. Understood. Yeah. Uh, and this is sort of an off topic because you have a, a degree in forensics. I, mm. I, I want to ask you, as far as, have you ever been interested, because I listen to Drum History, it's a great podcast, it's so interesting. Have you ever thought of diving into drum forensics, whether it's tracing skin, wood, artifacts, origins, the diaspora, the evolution, because the drum is one of the only instruments, and again, I, I, I was taught this in drum history, learned this in drum history, Throughout history, you will see the drum. Throughout evolution, you will see the drum. Whether it's communication, conquest, conquest, slavery, there's no other instrument you will see that's in every aspect of human development. Uh, do you have any interest in tracing the history of the evolution of the drum as far as forensics? Absolutely. Um, my, I mean, my master's is specifically forensic psychology, so mm -hmm. it, it marries my interest of and. You know what makes humans do what they do, uh, with wanting to help people. Um, like for example, being equipped to work with youth or refugees, or you know, the forensic psychology is a, is a confusing term for a lot of people. They're not really sure what it's about, but it's really taking therapy or psychology and applying it out into the world, into the real world, um, and. You know, as far as exploring the history of the drum, 
a lot of my work has to do with that uh, because the, the drum has actually taught me my most important lesson uh, of, of feminism, uh, which is, you know, up until I learned about some of the ancient drums uh, that women used to play thousands of years ago, I just thought, you know, feminism pointed to, okay, women need, women are allowed to work the same jobs as men and all that, make the same amount of money, you know, what these, these sort of tired conversations. But I didn't realize that, you know, women were worship ones and women were the musicians ones, the drummers and the doctors and the shamans. You know, that, that I was blessed to discover through a book called When Women Were Drummers by Lane Redmond. Hmm. Um, incredible, incredible research he, she did in this in this book um uh and and she has pictures of artifacts and thousands of years in many different areas in the world uh proof of of how everything about women the vulva the reproductive system was 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 honored and respected and worshipped and all these pictures of women playing what are basically frame drums and tambourines like like ricks you know so I suddenly, again, another moment when the light bulb went off for me and I, my life sort of shifted its, its position. I'm like, wow. I, I felt suddenly started to feel different as a woman. You know, this, this sort of strange internalized shame of, of being sort of less than as a woman mm-hmm. kind of went out the window. It was, it was no longer a question of, oh, we can prove ourselves to show that we can be or do whatever men do. No. There was a time when we were we were like <laughs> royalty. We were goddesses. You know, it was it was common understanding and practice to see women as these 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 magical creatures who align with celestial bodies because they all blend together with moon cycles. I mean, come on. Yes. <laughs> like you know what I'm saying? So preach. So everything everything shifted shifted for me, and as a result, you know, it's very important for me to hold. For example, women's groups and frame drums, because it's it's a regathering of of this uh, this this incredible healing power of of the frame drum, which they say goes back maybe hundred thousand years, the beginning of shamanism, and was a tool uh, by women to to bless crops and to manifest um, you know healing and to do you know. And it's still used to this day by indigenous groups as, as that tool. So, yes, I mean, this is an incredible topic everyone needs to, to explore because it's, it's part of our history, not only as you know, musicians, but as, as, as people, as humans, as humans. women. As, and, 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 and men can understand, too, what, better what their role is because men, you know, men are lost, too. Men, men are trying to figure out what, what these times mean. And, and back in, in these days, it was it was an honor to protect women, to, to allow women to to be everything that she could be in order to take care of the earth. You know, there's, there's an old proverb, a uh, native proverb. Um, you know, it, it's the job of, it's the job of the woman to lead men to source. Because again, women were seen as a, a source, a vulva, the cave, you know, this was source. Women are lead men to males to source, and then males 
their role is to make sure the woman roams the earth unharmed, free and unharmed. Note that it has nothing to do with ownership, nothing like that. Make sure that he protects her so that she can roam the earth unharmed. And this is this is like a really powerful powerful proverb that I always keep close to me and share. And I, I think it really empowers men too and reminds men why we why you know we protect essentially women are our mothers, our womb. Of course. We we are we are the peacemakers. We are what we birth, we 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 raise, we we, we grow, we, we make things alive. This is what we're about and what what a pleasure to to be able to cultivate that, right? I think I think we would find harmony in the world if we could rediscover this. The, and allow women to lead again, you know? The, I agree. As, as a man, I, I agree. Um, if we rediscover the power of the womb and without you, there mm-hmm. is no life. And I always recommend, if you have not heard this book, it's, I think it was in the 70s, Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, A History of Women Healers. And it talks about how powerful and how much knowledge you brought to the table, but how man or oh men usurped your information your authority your power and called it our own and said you can just be our secondhand women you you know you can't really hold the scalpel you can't be this person but you can you know you'll just be there and be our nurse it's a very powerful book i learned a lot from it but yes i definitely agree we we need to um um again find the great value in the female species Uh, April, I want to take the the last part of this and talk about your event center and also how people can find you as far as um, um, uh, instruction. So we will be right back. April, I want to take this time and I want to hear about your event space and also about... um, if you're accepting any students right now as far as um, instruction for what instruments. So please, April, take it away. Tell us about your event space. Sure. So my my uh, wife and I, Kara uh, Sanchez and I, have a, an event space and film studio space in uh, Long Branch, New Jersey. So in, in central Jersey by the, by the Jersey Shore. It's about an hour south of the city, um, and it's the first uh, film professional film studio in the area. Uh, uh, so we we hope to to get things going down there and in um, in in the way of film and art, and we also promote performing art of all kinds, and we welcome people of all backgrounds and nationalities and ages and abilities and orientations and cultures and bases uh, to express themselves as they as they wish creatively. Um, and as far as in a, the event space, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous modern industrial 6,500 square foot area, uh, high ceiling and perfect for weddings, for private events, for um, conferences and workshops and talks and pop-ups. So please visit us. We are at 10PRL, 
on Facebook and Instagram. That's at number 10, P as in Peter, R as in Ralph, L as in love, and uh, 10prl.com to learn more, to, to book a tour, or to book some time. We also share, Kira and I, a production company. We shoot music videos. We shoot pro- promos and whatever else you need to get really great high-end content for your social media, for your website, for your business. We want to support businesses now in a big way. We want to support artists now in a big way, people who are self-employed. So we are really making it affordable and easy if you want to come down and get really great, beautiful content that will generate cash flow for your business. Um, and also I, I teach regularly online at this time of course so uh and um, all the instruments and darbuka and rick and frame drum so just simply contact me you can contact me through facebook and instagram at april centrone that's at april like the month centrone c as in cat e and as in nancy t as in tom r-o-n as in nancy e and I will have all the contact information in the show notes, please. Once again, I've taken Rick um, lessons from April, and they were so much fun. I've I've taken lessons from a lot of since I was a little kid: drum lessons, um, uh, conga lessons, berimbau lessons. I know a good instructor when I uh, encounter a good instructor. She loves teaching, and she can speak. She can communicate the language to different level uh, students, and so highly recommend. Highly recommend. And I want to end this off, April. Anything you can say to the female drummers, percussionists out there that encounter some of these similar challenges you you encounter? Any advice you can you can you can give? Oh well, my advice to female drummers out there who are you know in the struggling in the sort of man's world of it. Just keep going and, and reach out to your to other female mentors. Um, you know, we're we're here. We can guide you. And some of the things that you're moving through, we you know, believe me, we've been there. And we can help you move through it quicker, you know. <laughs> life life is, is these lessons and we all have to move through them. But there's no shame in moving through it a little faster <laughs> than you know, learn from our, not mistakes, but, you know, learn from, from what we've been through. And uh, and that's why it's so great to, to reach out to teachers like me, to study with teachers like me. I will accelerate you through all these bumps and, mm-hmm. um, and let you know what you need to know to, uh, to, to rise above. To navigate. To, to <laughs> yeah, to navigate, exactly. April Centrone, I sincerely appreciate your, your your disclosure, your information, your humility, and your time. And I wish you well with the event space, with taking Thank on you. students in life. You've been a, a, a treasure today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Bless. Peace. Hey, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Move Evolution's Drumming Therapy. Please help us grow, rate, and review us. And if you would like more great content, 
hit the subscribe button. Would you like to find out more about me or Move Evolution Physical Therapy? Go to moveevolution.com. Heal, move, drum, evolve. director Thomas Kazomplik. Tom is a percussionist and also involved in a wide range of music as creator, producer, collaborator, and freelancer. In addition to his main projects, Thomas is active as a studio musician and live performer in New York City, featured on film and video game soundtracks and at venues from Carnegie Hall to Shape Shifter Lab. Based in Brooklyn, New York, Thomas has toured throughout North America, Europe, Scandinavia, South Korea, and Australia, and has performed for radio, film, theater, and television, including features on the Learning Channel, NPR, and France International Radio. Thomas Kazomplik, good afternoon, good evening. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much, sir. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me uh, on to talk with you. It's, uh, it's a super pleasure. And later on, I'll explain to people how I know you or how you know me. But I want to first get into, I always love asking other drummers, percussionists, when, how did you get bitten by the drum bug? What, what drew you to, what was the calling, the initial calling? Yeah, um, I would say there are, there are a few different points when I look back, I, I think about that question and there are a few different points where I look back that really stand out for me. Um, been drawn to music since a really young age, right? But I remember being uh, in elementary school when I went to see a, a big band at the local high school auditorium. And I remember, um, I just remember checking out the drummer while the band was playing. You know, I didn't play any instruments at that time. Um, I was just really drawn to music. And, um, but I remember being, you know, drawn to the drums specifically at that point. And it was, that was probably one of my earliest experiences of seeing live music. Um, How old were you? I want to say between like eight or nine, something like that, something between uh, seven and nine. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, then in uh, high school, or actually like in middle school, uh, 
my parents insisted that my brother and I play an instrument. So they're like, you're going to join the school. I grew up in Michigan, so they didn't really have, uh, there, there are very few schools that have or- orchestra programs, strings and such, but mm-hmm. um, it's a big band uh, culture. There, you know, there are school bands all over in Michigan, which is a, the big thing. So um, they, neither one of my parents played an instrument. And they, I, felt, I think they felt like they missed out. So they insisted that uh. my brother and I eat join the school band, at least, you know, do that while we were in school as an extra. So I, I, that was a really, um, that was a really positive thing for me, except they wouldn't let me play drums. Because they said, well, so what instruments do you want to play? And I'm thinking of, you know, all I wanted to do was play with my friends in a rock band, um, not necessarily playing the school band. So I said, well, you know, drums, that was the only thing in the band that was really like, this is going to be, you know, uh, I could, this will help me towards, you know, my goal. Yeah. Up. Of starting world domination with a rock band, right? <laughs> so, but they were like, "No, that's going to be too loud." So they weren't they weren't going to let me uh, study drums. So I picked the next loudest instrument, which was trumpet, and <laughs> <laughs> I did that for a year. And I guess they thought it was a big enough. I was a good enough sport about it that the next year uh, they brought me a, they bought me a snare drum uh, and let let me start taking private lessons uh, and switch. Mm-hmm. To percussion at that point so i started playing then in, in middle school school and stuff and uh, uh you know before i could even play you know i was talking to my friends about hey you know we want to play in a band because we're all just really drawn to music so that would have been my earliest thing of getting into it and then all through high school uh, i played uh, mostly you know uh, just learning on my own really I, I took some lessons and then just listening to tons of music and playing with my friends and groups uh i never thought about studying uh music as uh like as a as a thing to me music was well you know you get you you move to la or new york or something right and you you yeah try to meet people and you play and whatever else but uh again uh within my family there's a very big thing about you know you should go to college or whatever there's a lot of pressure on me to go to college which i wasn't necessarily in my my plan because i was even though i did well in school and stuff i was kind of a a rebel during that age, you know, especially like as an adolescent, as a teenager, it was definitely, uh, you know, that was, that wasn't something that was, what was resonating with me at the time. I didn't really think about it, but when that was brought up and well, if I'm going to do that, what would I study? I should study music. The thing was, it's like, I didn't, I didn't know the kind of stuff that I needed to know to get into a college program at that point. Um, yeah. so yeah. my last year of, uh, high school was like, <clears throat> man, I better really, you know, start doing all of my scales and that kind of stuff. Honestly, at that point, I didn't know how to read music because in the school bands, like you could pretty much get by as a drummer. Like I could read, you know, drum charts or whatever, but yeah, yeah. I wasn't gonna, you know, get in front of a marimba or a vibraphone and read. I, I didn't know how to do that at all at that point. So I basically taught myself to read music and everything that last year and, and ended up, you know, working up something, you know, for an audition, uh, like on a mallet instrument, you know, on a xylophone. So that was yeah. thankfully, uh, uh, convincing enough to get me in to the program. <clears throat> so in any case, you don't need to use all of that story, but the, <laughs> <laughs> I like that story. <laughs> the next big moment, this is getting up to the next big moment. And the thing that was, was really, uh, the clincher for me was I went to see <clears throat> the, uh, percussion ensemble at central Michigan university, which is where I ended up going to school. Uh, and the percussion program at that time was run by a guy uh, named Robert Honer, uh, who was ended up being my mentor and one of my greatest friends. Um, 
that concert just blew me away. So they played everything from uh, Don Cage, Third Construction, to, um, let's see, what else was on that program? I remember, they, so they did one half, which was all like contemporary classical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second half was jazz and a huge steel drum band. Uh, and they go to Solomon Air, who's a steel drum maker. And uh, I mean, the stage is just full of percussion instruments that I didn't even know existed. And, and this whole thing, like seeing all of that stuff. So you have basically an orchestra of percussion instruments filling the stage. And I didn't even know that kind of thing existed. That wasn't even in my you know, reality. So when I saw that, that was the real spark to be like, this is what I want to do. And um, so then, you know, uh, as, soon as, I got, as soon as I got to college and started working, with those cats, I was just like, you know, this, that was like, that, that was being like going to the, uh, going to the yogi or whatever, being like, okay, you know, what do I need to do? Uh, just tell me I'm gonna go in the practice room and, you know, eight hours a day or whatever needs to happen uh, so that I can play in this group because this is, this is where it's at. So yeah, that, that was what, really big. What percussion instruments do you actually play? I don't know if you can provide an inclusive list or uh, a full list, but what instruments do you play? Um, well, I play um, most percussion instruments. Uh, I spend a lot of time playing marimba and vibraphone. Uh, I play four mallet marimba, vibraphone, so both um, like in classical and jazz situations. Um, and then uh, any of the orchestral stuff, so that crosses over to you know your xylophone and your bells. And I play uh, timpani, and um, also you know my first love was really drum set, and I continue to do that. Uh, religiously as, <clears throat> as, as a thing, and <clears throat> I play uh, hand drums also, and um, you know, yeah, all the little, all the little toys and stuff. I have a huge collection of instruments here in my studio, and um, you know, through years of playing in percussion ensembles and orchestras and experimental music groups, um, yeah, I've dabbled in a lot of that and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, steel drum. I have steel drum Do too. You? for a long time i was going to ask you about because i was listening to your discography i was going online and i heard the steel steel drums like no that can't be him so you play you have him there at your studio yeah yeah i i have a lead band and i played you know we had a big steel drum band um where i was at in college uh so i I had that experience of playing that music uh but then you know and i and then i put the drum down for when I, i went to grad school i put the steel drum down for a little while and then um Later on, when I was playing in some chamber music groups, and right, we were writing our own stuff, um, I, I was thinking, well, it was a really weird instrumentation too. Where, you know, it'd be like bassoon, violin, and you know, classical guitar or something. I was thinking, well, what can I do to contribute to <laughs> melodically? Uh, you know, because I was playing some drums and, and other stuff like that. I'm thinking, how can I contribute to this melodically, and um, you know, and, and have something that fits in, and not have it be like a huge thing, not have to take like a five octave marimba, you know, which is a, a right. huge piece of gear. So I tried playing the steel drum with them and it just, it just fit really well. And it got me playing the steel drum in a completely different way. Um, meaning like when you're playing in a large steel drum band, mm-hmm. there's this tendency for everybody to overplay because you have a big drum section behind you, you have this battery. Yes. And it's, yeah, there's a big tendency to overplay. And then when I took that instrument, though, and put it with a, in this chamber music setting and then put a microphone on it so that I could be heard with everyone without with just being able to play with a nice light touch and really get the instrument to sing, I just, yes. it changed the world with the steel drum. And it can sound so, so beautiful and delicate. 
Have you had the opportunity to study with any, and I'm going to use the, the originals, the, um, the players, but anyone from Trinidad, any famous players from Trinidad or people who are just specialists on the steel fans? Um, I got to spend some time uh, with a guy named Philip Solomon, who's a steel drum maker. Who's, he's from uh, Trinidad. He lives in, uh, outside of Philadelphia now. No, I'm sorry, uh, Pittsburgh. And um, he's, great. he's a great guy. He came and worked with our, uh, he's the guy who built my steel drum. He worked with our college group a few times. And then I got to assist him uh, in a class where he was teaching uh, kids how to make their own steel drum. Essentially, it was, it was a workshop on beautiful. The steel. Yeah, so that people could understand where, you know, where it comes from and like what's behind all, yeah. all this. So uh, There's a great podcast, and I always bring this up. It's called um, Drumming History. And they... They talk about the drum, how it's the only instrument that you can see that has evolved with time. So every segment of history, you will see the drum. That's, and I, I just, I think about that all, all the time, the history of the drum, forensics of the drum. Um, I also want to ask you, I was looking through your, um, on your website and I, do you play the Bata drums? Because I find that's one of the hardest on your hands to play. I, I haven't played every percussion instrument, but have you played the Bata drums? I've studied them a little bit. Um, I would not say that I'm a Bata drum player. No, I really enjoy the music. And um, I've spent some time uh, with a guy named uh, John Amira in New York. Mm-hmm. You, I don't know if you know John or not, but he plays um, uh, a lot of the Haitian stuff. He teaches that and he'll, he plays ceremonies and things like that. Um, I've spent some time with him, but I haven't, uh, I haven't played too much Bata drums. I really enjoy them. So. Did you find them difficult? Not as far as the complex uh, polyrhythm, but just the 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 impact on your <laughs> on your hands. Because <laughs> I was in Cuba and I was I was sore for two days, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because okay. you play you play for a long time too, right? And it's like, yeah, man, yeah. Like it starts wearing. Yeah. I was with I was studying with a, a beanie bata, and they're the only female bata or back then bata group in Cuba. And that's sort of sacrilege. So a lot of the times the drums were destroyed, the studio space was destroyed because they're females and traditionally really? they're not supposed to play. So right. um, um, yeah, it was it was sad, but it, it was it was great playing with. It was just sad hearing the stories. They're strong women, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when did you start actually um, composing, mixing? And I'm not sure if you do singing or vocals, but when did you start composing music? And when did you start getting into the the mixing aspect? Drums. Um, Composing, I started with um, you know early on because I always I was always interested in creating my own music. So you know that evolved along the way. I was trying to write songs, and then like in college, I started to try and write uh, some um, larger pieces, uh, some chamber music pieces and stuff. Uh, and so I had inst- I had musicians who were very generous at that point in school who were willing to play stuff. You know, so like oh, like, great, I need to take you know, advantage of this opportunity. And so I'd try and write stuff for people and we had access to all these instruments and stuff. So I was trying to write some little percussion ensemble pieces, some chamber music pieces with other uh, instruments. And um, I was always playing in bands at the same time too. So we were working on songs together. Um, And so so all through college I took uh, composition as I was focused as a, on performing. uh, So that was my major was, you know, studying performance and getting those skills together but yes yes all through that all through uh college and grad school i also took secondary studies in composition and i had some really great opportunities to uh 
study with some some good composers and get get input um, in in that way as well. Um, then I started writing. You know, within the past, use that. We don't we don't need to uh, we don't need to date ourselves that bad. <laughs> I'm got, older than you, man. So yeah, after I got out of grad school, I was uh, composing more regularly, like and like working. Uh, with groups like making our making your own music, both composing together and then writing stuff on my own. I didn't get into the electronics and and uh, mixing um, in terms of um, you know doing recordings and then mixing uh, recordings both for myself and for other people until like say maybe um, I've been doing that kind of work for maybe like the past five six years something like that. But um, you know it was been writing stuff all the way along since since I can remember playing and been writing stuff. But yeah, uh, been getting more involved with the electronic side of things, the tech side of things, and then also seeing, you know, realizing what an art it is to to do the mixing stuff yeah. and, and 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 produce recordings as well. Um, yeah, really, the last you know six seven years or something like that, I've been spending a lot of time doing that and trying to trying to. Uh, invest into my own studio and things uh so and using that as a creative space uh, as well uh, listening to your music you, you have so many projects uh, and if you could pick one or two projects and this is going to be hard for you because i can't even describe it. i just say your your sound is eclectic how would you how would you describe your genre of music or your sound and again you have many projects pick your your top one not even, go past the clogs your most recent stuff, the um, the, um uh, what's the uh, American Dreamland? How would you explain the the the, the your, your genre, your sound? Um, yeah, well, like you said, it's 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 uh, it encompasses a lot of different influences, obviously. And the, the thing about that's one of the the question that you're asking, like, and it's it's uh, when you start talking about genre and things like that, the, mm -hmm. the, like those terms, they kind of exist not for the people creating the stuff yeah man for the people who try to, to figure out how am I, either how am i gonna uh promote this or how am i gonna where do i put this in my cd collection or whatever yeah uh, but it's um yeah one thing i can say is that i draw influences from a really wide range of things but when i'm creating my own thing I really try to to make it uh, a self-expressive thing that doesn't sound like someone else. So whether that's in whether I'm playing a solo percussion piece or whether I'm writing a piece for a large group, um, I try to create something that is um, it has integrity um, from from my you know, for my own artistic uh, self, I mm -hmm. feel like it's it's a, a very honest expression, um, and it's um, it has its <clears throat> sound, even if I am um, drawing influences from different places. So, you know, it re really in terms of the the listening or something, somewhere in the in the between you know classical and, and jazz. Uh, spectrum, but to me, like I hate the word jazz anyway. So, like, when you do that, yeah. Why do you why do you hate the word jazz? <laughs> uh, 
It's too general yeah. because of all everything that fits but underneath it's too <laughs> I've never heard it was ever there's this great book by uh, Arthur Taylor called On Notes and Tones. I uh-huh. think that's the title. On Notes and Tones. Arthur Taylor he interviews uh, a group as artists. Um, you know, including uh, let's see uh, all sorts of, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a particular quote, but like there was particularly like Max Roach, and he was, he was interviewing Max Roach, and um, Max Roach was talking about, you know, the term jazz, and he just was like, I, I hate people calling my music jazz. When you look at the history of it, I mean, uh, jazz, which is African-American music, um, that term was, it was kind of like saying, they didn't, it was kind of like that, excuse excuse my language here for your for your podcast you cut this up it's kind of like saying shit like that shit you know all that jazz like all that shit uh, like, that, that's yeah. really like that's what that word was when it started really so when you see yeah. something like jazz at lincoln center center you know it's kind of like saying shit at lincoln center uh, and it's just it's, kind of, it's, 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 it's so when you you know when you hear these artists talk about it who were you know from from back in anybody saw what Max Roach was saying about that really changed my thinking about mm-hmm. the term and stuff like that. And then also when you hear, you know, you look at somebody like Miles Davis and the scope of what he did in his work uh, and, you know, it was really criticized when he got into using electronic instruments and exploring funk and rock uh, stuff with his groups. And then people saying, oh, that's not jazz or, or whatever, you know, so it's, People try to label what what jazz is um, when really you know it's in the, the best description I've heard of jazz. I read uh, uh, an article. It was in the New Yorker. I'll have to look. I'll have to look up the guy's name uh, who, who wrote this. Right? But he said something like, uh, you know, some, there's a, there's a phrase uh, people say sometimes like it's close enough for jazz. You know what I mean? Because it's not, like sort of insinuating that it could be a little bit loose or whatever. Yeah. I was close enough for jazz. Yeah. But the, the thing about that that's uh, doesn't quite click is that like jazz is actually like, you know, a really sophisticated art form. And um, so the, the thing that he said that stuck with me though, he said it's uh, it's um, improvisation by people who practice excessively. Improvisation by people who practice excessively. Obsessively. Obsessively, sorry. Yeah, not excessively. Huh. That was kind of the best description I've I've heard of jazz as an overall thing because that's really it's more of an attitude to me. It's more of an attitude about how you're approaching the music than how mm-hmm. the music actually sounds itself. Like, but if you ask, uh, if you ask, mm-hmm. um, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What uh, if you ask uh, Wit Marsalis? what jazz is, he's going to tell you something very different. You know, he's going to tell you it has to have a ride beat and, you know, it has to swing. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. So anyway, there are a number of reasons why I hate the word jazz. Thank you. Thank you for that explanation. <laughs> Just to bring it back around. <laughs> I want to talk about loop two, four, three. Now, all first right. of all, please explain the name. Okay, um, the name was essentially the loop part of it uh, refers to like a circle of friends. Okay. So it's not 
really like um, it's not loop based music. So it's not about that, which has got confusing once that became popular, but we named the group before that. So it gets, it's referring to kind of like the circle of friends and 243 is, uh, was room 243 was the rehearsal room where um, we did all the early percussion ensemble stuff that I was talking to you about. And, and the group that loop 243 started was when that first started, it was people who I had been in percussion ensemble with in college. And we pulled in other people to, who we worked with in the past, who, who had come up with us and stuff. Who It was very easy for us to play together because we had this, um, we had been through so many uh, different things. We had the same kind of philosophies about, you know, um, playing together, similar technique and stuff. So it was very easy for us to vibe together. And uh, so that's where the number comes from. There's a rehearsal room uh, under the Robert Hunter Percussion Ensemble where, I mean, we spent, you know, we spent a good part of our, our lives, you know, in our, our early 20s, so our teens and early 20s. This is sort of a general question because I've looked through the website a few times and there's so many. First of all, I love the archives. I love the way you archive. Is that where people can find most of your music if they want to get a sort of discography to see what you're about? Because um, I, I know there are a bunch of different uh, platforms where you hold the music. Yeah. the um, I was... So that's that's the best. Like the homepage of our website is like there's. And I need to I need to re redo that site. It's been a while because and it just I feel like there's probably too much information there right now, and it should be streamlined. But given that there's so much information, there are a lot of that. That's the best place for people to go to just like to, to in order to find all of the other things. Um, okay, like what am I? Uh, what are these groups doing? You know, okay, they can they can uh, reach all the social media from that page, whether it's YouTube or um, you know Twitter or whatever, and um, also um, our record label and um, other places where you can find music online are all, all reachable from that uh, from that homepage. The best place to hear a bunch of different stuff is probably the Bandcamp page for our record label um, because that page they let you uh stream full songs at least a few times like you know if you go to apple music or whatever it's usually just a, a little of it you can listen to entire songs and see all the all the different records there on uh, the bandcamp page for our uh, okay. label and to my my listeners our listeners i'll provide all the links in the show notes um yeah, i, I want to tell you i love if i'm pronouncing it incorrectly sakura off of, off of uh, american dreamland i'm sorry am i pronouncing S-E-K-U-R-A, Sakura, Sakura? Uh, S-A, yeah, Sakura. Yeah. Man, that, I, I, I like that song, man. It drives without smashing through things, if you know what I mean. It's a constant cutting through the weeds, cutting through the jungle, cutting through the, the vines, but it's not, um, um, it's not overwhelming. But I have to say, my favorite song, this is actually off of, um, um, I think it's a Zodiac album, Dark Matter. What yeah. instrument is that? Are you playing? What, what instrument are you playing on that? Or are you playing a few? Um, there, and there is a, there's a cool video of that one too that uh, oh. our, a friend of ours made. Yeah. Um, so the instruments, we were we were really uh, experimenting with some stuff at that point with some sounds, uh, and I had uh, we had a guy build a, a log drum that had a pickup inside of it. And um, oh. so you can plug, 
so you can plug this uh, a quarter, you know, just a quarter inch cable. You can plug this log drum, so it's a wooden, you know, slit drum uh -huh. uh, with just. I think it has four different pitches, and um, <clears throat> you can plug it. It has a pickup inside of the drum, so just like a guitar pickup. You can plug a cable into that, and then run into whatever you want. So for that piece, we had that log drum plugged into uh, an effects pedal that had like an expressive uh, pedal on it. Uh, mm -hmm. So you can you can bend the pitch with your foot while you're playing it. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that so we're using that, and then also um, I had uh, removed some marimba bars uh, from you know from the marimba, so the bars are just hanging there. His selection of pitches, and then I yeah. have microphones on that that are going into uh, an effects pedal. Um, I forget what effects is using at that point. There's some kind of uh, it's similar to like a squeak echo or something like that. But uh, so I had those. Uh, I'm using those marimba bars along with some some small metal objects and some drums, and they're all picking being picked up with that effect. Uh, so it, it it vibes into the sound as well. Yeah, gotcha. So it's not really another question. It's like those are so it's it's. Funny because, do, uh, so that was the start really of doing this electroacoustic thing, which I got super fascinated with, where it's like using these things that are very familiar or, or old or ancient that are the root of what we do. It's percussionists. You know, the log drums, it's just, it's just it's like one of the earliest percussion instruments, right? It's like you have this piece of wood and you carve it out and you're getting pitches off it and you're hitting it. Uh, and uh, the marimba bars, you know, taking it, to the next thing and, and the drums just like the root of what we do and then combining that with something that almost seems like it's from outer space with, with, with the electronics and so forth um so that was you know that's me trying to like search for those those sounds that haven't really been you know found yet or that we can express things in different ways yeah. while still being you know having that that integrity of like this is, you know, it feels very natural because this is this is what we do. It's like like we're playing the drums, you know. And, and on underground, was that you playing um, steel pan on underground or timpanis? I I finally remember the uh, yeah, something so, caught me. Yeah, no, there's steel drum and marimba on that. I was oh. playing marimba on that one, and uh, Lauren Watson, who was um, playing, writing, and performing uh, stuff with me, like through that whole. Uh, he and I were the performers, the, the percussionists on that record, uh, mm -hmm. so and uh, he was playing steel drum on that one. And on your website, I find it very interesting. You have a lot of, um, how do I say, social commentary or Twitter news, and I have to read this. Um, I have to read this verbatim. Um, sorry, black people invented rock and roll, which is the reason I exist. Without black lives, my life wouldn't matter. Very poignant statement based upon um, the zeitgeist of the time now, but why do you have um, Twitter feeds, especially that are um, hot topics uh, um, uh, linked to the, uh, the political state of today, uh, the racial tension of today? Why are you having that on your website, on the home page? Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, first of all, uh, I can't take credit for that statement. <laughs> Somebody else had said that, and I saw it, but it resonated with me. Uh, it, re it resonates very deeply with me, so that's a retweet. But uh, that uh, when we first set up that website, that, oh, a, a Twitter feed is a, it's an easy way 
to um, keep like do quick updates. So like if you're on the road, uh, you know, yeah. you can do something really quick and have it show up on your homepage. Like, oh, concert's going to be blah, blah, blah tonight. You can put little updates up there. And there's one place where people see it because you're not going to have time maybe to go and update your website necessarily. So I think that was the idea about having the feed on the page there. Um, and usually that feed is just about, usually that the Leap 243 Twitter thing is just about music. There's so many things, you know, mm. in the world. There's so many, there's so many things that, you know, I'm interested in also, but because of what uh, that page is and what it's, what the, you know, that Twitter account serves as, it's usually, <clears> just, it's just about music and updates about the group, but things, it gets, you know, it got to a point where it's like, I, I just have, there are things that have to be said. And, you know, I believe strongly in this enough that it's going, you know, it can go right on my homepage and that's fine. So I try not and, to and, get political most of the time online. I try not to get political online most of the time, but yeah, it's, you know. That's crazy. Sometimes, sometimes it's a, a cathartic maneuver to put your thoughts and emotions out online. You just have to be careful. <laughs> but I often, I try to stay away from the political arena on my social media pages. But sometimes, as a fifty-two-year-old uh, um, black male in New York, sometimes I have to divulge my feelings and let people know where I stand and how I stand. Um, I want to tell people about um, um, your website. What's the main purpose of your every every creative person, every person has a website has a different reason why they have a website. What is the main purpose of your website, Thomas? The loop two, four, three. Um, yeah, to, um, well, it has number one, I guess it's, it's a promotional and, um, like sort of promotional and community outreach thing. So mm -hmm. both to just let people know what we're doing, um, both, um, music fans, presenters, uh, you know, other musicians, and um, to share news about our projects for people who want to know about it, people who want to book us, they can get, you know, information and work samples there. And then, um, you know, I guess that that's, that's really the main purpose of it is have emotions a place where it where it's like, okay, this is what we're doing, a place where people can get some content um, if they're interested, so they can they can see some things without having, you know, pay access to anything. They can see a couple of videos, they can listen to some music there, um, and, you know, they can get an idea of what we do, and hopefully get, you know, also, it's, it's obviously, it's a landing page to, to send to people who are interested in, in booking shows or working with us in some other fashion. Okay. I want to tell people that, um, do you, are you comfortable talking about your accident? Yes. Okay. I want to tell the listeners that I was Thomas's physical therapist, but they, the pandemic is here and I haven't seen Thomas in a few months. I may be his therapist again, but I want to ask you, what was your gigging, touring studio time like prior to the accident? I want, I want you to tell people about the accident and I want you to tell the listeners what happened directly the, 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 the subsequent months after the accident? What were you going through? And physically, mentally, what were the, the restrictions? But first of all, what was, your, what was your schedule like a few months before your accident as far as in the studio, practice, tour? And then tell me about the accident. Okay. Or tell the listeners about your accident. Um, just to, would you mind before we get into this, if we just take a quick pause so I can get myself a glass of water as well? I Not at all. With that. Not at all. I'll just run I'll, to the other room and grab take a glass. Take your time. As much time as you want. You're right back. Yep.
the segue i'm gonna have like maybe three segues but i'll play some maybe music thank you for sending me a link to your music i'm gonna try to download to my itunes i love having segue music but thomas tell people um as i was saying i was your physical therapist um i met you you had a see if i remember um uh, left arm right knee correct what's the other one okay tell people about your uh, what your schedule right before the accident tell people about the accident and how things had changed for you uh, physically and mentally after your uh, traumatic accident. Right, so uh, at the time that that accident occurred, so I was, actually I was all packed. I had a flight uh, the next morning to Indianapolis for uh, for PASIC, Percussive Art Society International Convention, mm-hmm. which is a uh, you know big international convention that happens once a year for the percussion community get together and uh, they have performances, the industry people are there, workshops and stuff. And um, I was headed there to promote, um, mostly going as, as a composer because I was coming off of, uh, had just um, finished uh, the recording that I did with the New York University Percussion Ensemble, mm-hmm. the Percussion Symphony piece, which is um, I think the first one that I gave you uh, a copy of. So I was. Um, and, you know, I had copies of the record pack. I was going there to, to promote that. Um, I had been mainly, I, so I've been, in terms of my activity, I, the previous year, um, I was working on releasing that album and um, was uh, doing a lot of work in the studio, um, both doing sessions and then doing mixing and stuff like that. So I hadn't been doing that much traveling and um uh, performances, uh, like touring and stuff. Uh, but coming into that fall, just before the accident, I was actively booking stuff again. I was just like itching to get back out on the road because I had been doing a bunch of studio stuff and, uh, and so forth. So I, you know, I was booking concerts and, um, I had just, I had just done some performances. Um, I'd done some solo performances both in the city and uh, down in D.C. and Philadelphia. I regularly go down. There's a great uh, uh, improvisational, like experimental music uh, community uh, down, down in the D.C. Philly? area. Oh, uh, well, oh, in Philly and in D.C. Uh, and yeah, mm-hmm. I, try, I try to regularly get down there uh, and, and play some of the clubs and there are great musicians down there. Um, so, yeah, I had been on the road doing some solo shows. Um, uh, I had some freelance gigs around the city that, that I was active doing and I was saying I was just getting ready to, I had a ser- series of things booked out of town and um, yeah, I was heading out to, getting ready to head out to Indianapolis and it was the night before that flight that, that this accident happened. Tell people about the accident. Sorry so, if this brings back any uh, psychological trauma. <laughs> yeah. So. One of those things I think of that, uh, I, I think of some Eddie Murphy skit where he's saying, oh, I was just going down, I was just walking down the street, minding my own business, just walking down the street, minding my own business. <laughs> That's what he's doing. I was just walking down the street, minding my own business. And I had to go to the ATM to get a cab fare for the next morning, you know. It's just, uh, went, went for a little walk, it's just in my neighborhood. Uh, there's, there's a corner right by me that, um, it's, it's not the only one, but there's a 
particular, there's a stop sign there. You know, it's a, it's a two two way streets, so it's essentially a four way stop, but it's just you know it's two two way streets, so it's only two way stop, right? And um, often people will run that, you know, and there's bicyclists go through it, cars will roll through it sometimes. So it's just it's kind of a dangerous intersection. So I'm just you know I'm looking out to make sure that safe and everything. I'm. I'm one of these people too. I don't talk. I don't look at my phone or do anything like that when I'm walking around in the city because I just try to be aware and uh, mm-hmm. you know be, be careful and be safe and whatever. But this particular corner too, it's just I live in an industrial part of Brooklyn where which has its ups and its downs. You know, the down of it is that there's usually all over the streets and um, it's loud and it's dirty. You know. Um, so as I'm walking down the sidewalk, uh, this happens so fast that uh, just out of nowhere, all of a sudden, it was as, as if somebody had tackled me. I went straight down to the pavement and um, landed directly on my kneecap. Lovely. Uh, like, and then the way that it, I, it fell down, it twisted me around and it hit my left elbow smack right on that too. And I immediately, I knew something was broken because I was just screaming in pain. And uh, I've never broken a bone before in my life until then. But uh, welcome to my world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the way that that hurt, I was like, yeah, something's broken. And um, there wasn't really any, uh, there were some people around, but nobody was going to help me. I don't want to go into that part, part of it, really. Um, but and I didn't have my phone either. I was one of those, oh. I was just running, you know, just running up to the ATM and I'm coming back. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have my phone, so I couldn't call anybody. There was nobody around who was going to help. So with a broken knee and a broken elbow, I managed to finally, like after, you know, lying there screaming in pain for a while, I got myself up. And wait, somebody, wait, what happened to the, the guy who hit you? The person who hit you? There was nobody that hit me. Um, I, there was a, there's a thing in the side, there's a pole in the sidewalk that, uh, this, there's a stub in the sidewalk that was sticking up. Yeah. It was like a metal pole where like a street sign had been cut down. Uh, uh, so it was one of those things sticking up. And then there was also like a, a, a plastic band that was, um, you know, like from shipping boxes, one of those industrial mm-hmm. heavy plastic straps yeah. uh, that go around boxes. Well, the, there's, there, this is, again, it's an industrial area and they're shipping in and out all, all day in front of this spot. And one of those plastic straps was like stuck around that that metal thing. And it, like, yeah, oh, I stepped just right so that both my feet got tripped. Both up. feet. Bolo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did this fall. I'm not laughing at your injury, and I'm sorry I forgot the the incident because it's been so long. I keep thinking it was a hit and run. Yeah, no, no, it was just I, I was by myself, but I was there were two there were things on the sidewalk that I just got tripped up on, and I was careful as, as I was trying to be in this situation. You know, like I said before, I probably had a better chance of winning the lottery than uh, something like this happening. You know, I've, I've lived in the same, I've lived in this area a really long time. Never, you know, never had anything even remotely close to this happen. But uh, yeah, I just went straight down really hard and uh, then had to, had to haul myself home. And I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe it's, I managed to get myself upstairs home and uh, maybe it's not broken, right? So I get myself, I get some ice, sit down, put the leg up, try to ice it for a while. And it's, it was very clear that this, you know, this was just getting worse and not better. So I ended up, you know, just got to the 
got to ER. I called car service and went to ER. And what was the diagnosis, please? Uh, there's so much wrong that we didn't even know at that point. So they knew that uh, uh, my my kneecap was fractured. They knew my elbow had a fracture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at that point, I didn't know about all the soft tissue damage because they didn't see that in the CAT scan. That I, I, Refresh my memory. Did I have to contact your doctor's office to get clarification on a very vague diagnosis or was this uh, a different incident because i feel like you came in and he said knee pain or fractured patella and then something wasn't going right and i had to ask the office again there was other soft tissue damage. your, your symptoms didn't make sense is that correct yeah yes yes so okay. uh, and um well for for everyone out there and just just so you know um <laughs> richard was I got more information from you than I got from any, any of these doctors. Uh, Thanks, man. Yeah, it was, it, it was amazing. And you know what? I didn't, the guy who, the orthopedic surgeon that I originally got referred to, the guy never even touched my leg. He never, you can mention his name if you want. <laughs> <laughs> never call even out, touched out. my leg. And um, he, uh, he, never, he never got me an MRI or anything. Um, so the only reason that I got that is like when I finally I switched doctors, which was only because, um, and I don't really, I don't know that I necessarily want to use this part right here, but it was because I got an attorney. Um, that was the only reason that otherwise I probably wouldn't even thought to do that myself. And let's just say you had a professional give you some great advice to seek a secondary opinion. How's that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They hooked me up with a different doctor. And then okay. the first thing that guy said, I went and talked to him, and he seemed like he, he seemed like he was uh, he seemed like he was good. And the first thing that he said is like, "Yeah, let's get you an MRI." And then I brought I brought those results to you and the program that we had been working on. You were like, "Oh, this is why this isn't getting better," because guess what? You have a torn ACL, you have a torn meniscus. You know, this is so. Then you know, I, I didn't even understand all of the info, but you know, you were the only person who went over that whole thing with me and then pulled out the skeleton and said, look, this is what's wrong here. This is what's wrong here. And this is what we're going to do to get you stronger. So, yeah, but that was like after, you know, already like two months of therapy and, yeah. and I, I had already had splints off and everything. Yeah. He made me look bad, man. No, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you, as far as getting back after the injury, how long days, weeks until you actually sat down over the kit, over the gongas, Marimba and started playing it. What were the physical restrictions? And I, I never, I know if I ever told you, I got hit by a, a car in Bradsville truck, smashed my face, and it wasn't so much the physical issues, it was crossing the street. And I had phobias for about a month of cross, I'd freeze, and I'd start having little panic attacks crossing the street for a month or so. So yeah. physically, what were the issues? And mentally, psychologically, what uh, traumatic issues, or what did you suffer from? Oh, so many issues. Yeah, so many, so many issues. <laughs> um, you know, so I had, um, I had some. So the, this accident happened in uh, November. Um, you know, not this year, but when it happened, it was November, and um, I still had gigs that month. You know, and to, so uh, I had to cancel that stuff. But there, I had some. I had some gigs uh, around the holidays, you know, around Christmas, and um, 
that was my goal was to see if I could play those because I would have had uh, I would have had the splint off my leg by then. But it was mm -hmm. it would have only been like eight weeks after the accident that these kids were. So I tried to get myself in, in a shape where I could play. And I was just going to play timpani mm -hmm. for for this. And um, so I was able to move my hands, I think, quicker than I, I thought would be possible. So even though I had trouble um, and you know, I, I still had pain and, and it was you know, I still had atrophy in my arm. Um, but, uh, it was, it got to a point where, you know, I could within, you know, so within six to eight weeks, I was doing a little bit of stuff with my hands, doing some playing and see, uh, I would test myself every once in a while and, you know, you know, maybe at five or six weeks, I was still like the, the bounce off of the, 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 the vibrations from the drum aid that made the elbow hurt. So like, okay, I don't want to, you know, push this too quick, but I, I was trying to get myself ready to play by Christmas for this gig, and I felt like I probably could have done it, mm -hmm. but the gig meant also, you know, getting to a church in Queens and then getting up to the choir loft, you know, several flights of stairs, and with, you know, with my leg in the condition that it was still, yeah. and there was just this, this wasn't going to happen. So I had to sub out, you know, those gigs and then just try and try and regroup after that. Um, I mean, I was... It, it took a, I mean, when I first came to see you, um, I, I still couldn't really use that right leg. Yeah, you were pretty weak going up and down the stairs. You were collapsing on that. Now, now yeah. ACL, meniscus, fractured patella right, and the elbow, was it the fractured left elbow? Yeah. Or was it, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And, and you know what, the thing I didn't even find out, is another thing I just remembered the other day, with the, until I got that MRI, they didn't know that I actually, uh, my femur in the right leg was also had a small fracture in it. So the amount of pain and swelling that I had, it was like, oh, it finally yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it was by the time, in terms of when I could really like sit down at the drums or something, you know, um, I don't know, it was, and feel okay about that with everything. It was, it was, I don't know, maybe three months or something. Three One months. And, and psychologically, what, what, uh, as far as sleeplessness, uh, I won't go into depression, but, um, angst, um, catastrophizing when I, when am I going to be able to play? When I, can I use my right knee? Yeah. What were you going through mentally? Well, um, actually, I think uh, I, I think the depression is a really is a is a huge part of it, and it's a thing that should be we should touch on because it's okay. I think it it's that's that's it, it's really tough when you look at any time uh, somebody who's you know you count on your body for as part of what you do, not just for a profession, but it's it's so much who you are, you know, mm -hmm. whether that's uh, athlete, musician, uh, dancer, what have you, it's, it's really, that's what you've dedicated your life to. And even if you weren't, you know, it's one of those things doesn't matter if you weren't making money at it, you'd still be doing it no matter what. Uh -huh. That's, uh, it, it's who you are. And it's like everything that you've uh, you put your energy into. It's, it, you know, it's traumatic. I had, um, you'd asked about, you know, other maybe things that I had, had uh, things that I've gone through um, throughout, uh, you know, my career and my path for injuries as well. And I had like one other kind of serious one with a hand, um, like in college, that was just like a, a soft tissue thing in one of my fingers. But it was, um, you know, I was devastated, and I actually couldn't play. There was 
longer for that injury than even mm-hmm. when the broke out, as it turns out. But um, it, it's traumatic because the first thing that's going through your head is, am I ever going to play again? You know, that's kind of the first thing is like, am I, is this coming back? Am I going to be able to get there? But, you know, you have to get it over that hump and be like, yes, I am going to do this. And you get on that path and happen. But, um, you know, all, all the, um, all the uh, uh, sort of uh, momentum that I lost because of this was, you know, it was, you know, it felt it, it, that really weighed on me. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, it was such a long recovery and, and, and it's a very painful recovery process to start, as you know. Uh, so just, but you, it's like you have to move, but every time you do it, it's just, it's, it's so painful. So, um, but knowing that I had to get myself playing again and knowing that like just wanting to be strong again, physically, yeah. um, that got me moving. And despite even, so whatever, whatever other kinds of things, uh, I still had moments of being, uh, depressed and so forth, but it was having that goal was the thing that you know that kept that kept me going for like okay this this has to happen. It kept me kept me working out. It kept me make you know trying to be back playing again and just making sure that uh, I was strong enough to do what I needed to do. Did your psychology shift or change once you got the second diagnosis? I'm asking this because your brain can play tricks on you and not knowing. And especially since you're a percussionist and if your hands and limbs are damaged, say you, you fell and you cut your ear. Well, that's your ear. You need that. Say you fell and you <laughs> cut your face or something. And okay, let's, I have my hands and my limbs. I'm okay. But the brain will catastrophize. The brain will like, exaggerate symptoms if it's your body part you need for your, your function, your survival, for your play. Once you receive a second diagnosis from that second position, and okay, femur, ACL, meniscus, did that change things for you? Okay, I know what's going on. I know it's going to take a little long, but at least I know what's why I'm not improving. Did that help at all mentally? Um, no, it well, uh, this <laughs> made it worse. <laughs> the second diagnosis made it a lot worse because I didn't know that I had all that soft tissue damage. And um, it wasn't, and I didn't, I don't think even when I first saw that, I, I didn't realize, uh, I didn't know enough about, you know, uh, anatomy that, uh, mm. like, Oh, I didn't realize at first that oh, this stuff doesn't grow back. It's like oh, you know that, right? It's not like it's not like you're gonna. It's not gonna like your skin. It's just gonna you, like heal itself, and it's gonna. Be, so that that was actually devastating to me because then it was like when I realized that I had all that soft tissue damage and that it was um, that that wasn't you know necessarily gonna get better. Um, you know, well, do I get surgery? And I talked to the doctors about what the surgery meant and what it would do and not do. Um, like that's I ended up not getting it so i never did have surgery for those things i may have to at some point still but i also i wasn't ready to do that i wasn't ready to be out again and like yeah you know just not be able to walk again for however many weeks you know after uh, a surgery or just i wasn't ready to do to do all of that again so it just getting that second uh diagnosis was kind of traumatic because it's like okay you know i'm never gonna who um even even though i'm gonna be able to get get much stronger and be okay and do most things like i'm probably never gonna ski or can't like, dunk a basketball or yeah anything like that 
the question. <laughs> you know, I, I love that. So like I, buttons, but that's yeah. All of that stuff was like okay. You know, this really has changed my life in a way that's um, that's that's permanent. And so you know, you can fixate on that, or um, you, know, you have to find a way to get past it. So um, compensate and get better. Yeah. So my my goal, you know, since then has been to just like I'm gonna you know I'm gonna get get uh, stronger than I was before, and I'm gonna come out you know like Muhammad Ali. And I'll be ready to take everybody on. What, what's check? What do you do right now for your fitness, as far as like strength, cardiovascular mobility, flexibility? What do you do right now to stay drumming fit? Yeah, um, it's uh, I do lots of stretching. So every day I'm I'm doing some stretching just to try and stay limber. Um, I'm, I do the stairs up and down. Um, you know, uh, oh, right for cardio and for building and for building my legs and stuff. Love uh, stair and climbing. Do, you know, some of the stair, uh, yeah, and the, the actually some of the step up and step down exercises that uh, that we did that you showed me. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Just going, you know, going back and forth, up and down, the, the different in the different variations on that. Um, I still do those, like I, I cycle those into my routine um, with with the way that the you know with this pandemic and everything i'm really lucky to have access to the roof of my building so mm-hmm. i can go up and go for a walk do laps and not have to be out on the street and all that that was one of the other psychological things like as as you mentioned you know uh just like going out into the world at all at first i mean for for weeks i was carrying you know i was using a cane even when it was like maybe i didn't really need it because i was really i was still unstable just in my head and, and I, I'm watching the, the sidewalk uh, just like like crazy for any object, you know, or anything yeah. trying to, and yeah, you, you get really paranoid, um, but you know, you almost have to be, I guess, to stay safe in the city. Um, so anyway, so to, to, to avoid that, I can go to my roof and, and, and walk. Uh, so I'll do laps up there. So I do the walking, you know, up the nice. stairs, um, playing drums as a, as a cardio thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, uh, you know, most of my workout I do at home. So I do free weights and, uh, pushups and pull-ups and, you know, um, uh, planks and, you know, core stuff. And you have exposed beams in your studio. I see. I uh, think. Yeah. Kind of. This is, uh, this, this is actually, uh, for a, a loft. This is something that, you know, we built here. So it's, it's, uh, uh but it's Olympic you know, rings, pull-up bar, it's, <laughs> rope. Is strong that I can hang up for sure. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And <laughs> I want to finally ask you about your um, um, right now lingering symptoms. Right now, Richard's been this amount of time. Right now, I still feel uh, unstable uh, jogging. I feel weird going downstairs. If I have a load in my hands, like my, if I, I'm carrying a, a, my bass drum uh, for a couple blocks downstairs, I don't feel a state. My, my, I still have a rainy days. My elbow gets sore. What symptoms are you still experiencing? That you notice? Yes, um, you know the the trick is uh, I have to keep have to keep moving and, and mm-hmm. exercising really because um, when I notice uh, well if I do, do my elbow for instance um, that is if, if I'm uh, it, it tends to get um, tense maybe a little quicker or tired maybe a little quicker than the other hand and it's the other arm and it's um, you know if I uh, 
if it takes too much of a, a load, like weight wise, then I'll, I'll really feel that. And I have to be careful still that way, but it's, it's getting much, much better. Um, you know, and like my knee, if I haven't really been, if it's, it's the day where I do a lot of office work or something like that, or I've been just mm-hmm. I didn't haven't done much, um, but it'll start to get stiff and I'll feel that. Or, you know, the other thing I've noticed, like I tried to, to, to go on some, some hikes and stuff um, yeah. outside of the city. Uh, if I'm on ground where it's, you know, more like inclines or more like wobbly, like walking in a field, something like yeah. that, uh, that kind of uh, it's, the stability is not quite there and I'll feel um, a pain.